All right, look with me to 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh and Amazing Grace, part two, part two. And uh, a wonderful story, I think all of us would agree, of God's grace in the life of someone incredibly, incredibly wicked. Um, Some of us can complete this thought from this song, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that, like me, I once was lost, was blind, but now I see. Why do we know that so readily? Yeah, exactly. Interesting enough that um, one um, Newton scholar has concluded that actually, during a given year, that Amazing Grace, some rendition of it, is performed some 10 million times. 10 million times. Uh, You've seen it um, performed at Super Bowls. You've seen it performed at memorial services for a fallen soldier, a fallen police officer, a fallen fireman. Um, You've seen it sung by people who don't even have, who have not even experienced the grace of God. And I've seen some people sing it with a, a great deal of passion and soul, and they don't even know the Lord. There's just something about the song itself uh, that resonates with us. And we would all say it resonates with us because we're all people who need his grace, do we not? And it's often said, and it is in fact true, where would we be without his grace? Well, let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves, where would we be without his grace? Who can draw, who can give us an answer to that? Where would we be? Dead in our sins. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, of which you walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And we were all sons of disobedience. And I love, as you've heard me say before, absolutely my favorite um, thought in the Bible, if you will, these two words in verse four, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us did what? made us alive. I love that divine intervention. And you see that divine intervention throughout scripture, and you most definitely see it in the life of Manasseh. And if there was someone that was blind, it was Manasseh. If there was someone that was lost, it was Manasseh. If there was someone who was a wretch, it was Manasseh. But yet what happened in his life, there was a, a sound that he had not heard before, that he heard for the first time in his life, if you will, and it was Yahweh calling out to him and saying, repent. Now, God took him through a course, and it began with the Assyrians coming and and literally putting something in his nose and chaining him and taking him away to Assyria. And then he came to his senses when it says in the text, he was in distress. And then he entreated the Lord, and then he prayed, And then he came to know the Lord. But notice where it began. It began with distress. And I would probably, I think it's safe to say if I were to ask uh, everyone here that knows the Lord, did you go through some time of distress before you came to Christ? Just a quick survey. How many of you went through some distress before you came to Christ? Isn't that amazing? Now, some, if you came to the Lord younger in life and uh, most likely not, 
Like I can think about my kids that know the Lord, no real distress in life. But some of us as adults, as we came to the Lord, the Lord took us through something to bring us to our senses. And often what he had to do is humble us, even as Manasseh was humble. And we've already learned from the first lesson that God humiliating someone is, in fact, an act of grace. Because had he not humiliated us, then we may have continued on that path. And it surely would have been a path of destruction. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, if you will. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He goes onto his rooftop and he says, look at all these kingdoms which my hand have made. All my glory. He says, and then what, what does God do to him? Ah, I have a word for you, um, Nebuchadnezzar. And he sends him off seven years. And it says of Nebuchadnezzar, and he came to his what? Senses. Senses. See, before we know the Lord, we have no spiritual senses. We're dead. So we're absolutely desensitized to spiritual things. And what God has to do often in so many of our lives, he has to awaken us. And sometimes he, the initial sense of awakening us is to take us through some tribulation. And you can think um, there's some of us that are, are deep sleepers, if you will. I know someone uh, that I love dearly that is a deep sleeper. Um, and it seems like nothing can disturb their sleep. Whereas me, I mean, if I hear a cricket outside... All of a sudden, okay, what's going on? I mean, it is a gift. It is a gift to be able to do that. I'm thinking, how? What am I talking about my wife? Why would I be talking about my wife? <laughs> it's an endearing statement. That's all it is. I'm saying it's a gift of God that she has, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it takes a little bit to get my dear wife up sometimes, right? But think about when you are in a spiritual stupor and you're sleeping and God is calling out. You remember what the text says that God spoke, but they did not listen. And God is saying, repent, 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 turn from the idols, turn from your vanity, turn from destruction. And then people just sleep through it. But what God has to do sometimes is come to our bed, if you will, and shake it a bit. And then we awaken and we realize, oh, the Lord. And this is what happened to Manasseh. He was, he was a wretch of a king, the worst of kings in one sense. He is compared to Ahaz, who is a horrible king. And if we look, as I said last week at 2 um, Kings 21, then we don't get the sense that there is any reformation from Manasseh. There is any reform. There is any repentance because it simply says he, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and he died. And we don't want to live that way. A sad story that some of you probably have read even recently of someone uh, very intellectual, um, prominent in Christian circles, and he went to his death in sin. And now this, the, the more official report is out of even literally, it seems like on his, on his deathbed, he's still acting on his sin, still receiving uh, these horrible pictures from women that he's exploited, even as he's breathing his last breaths. That's eerie. 
And I heard a horrible statement. It's not just heard. It was a part of the report that actually telling one of his victims that you must not let this out, because if you do, you have to understand that millions of souls will be affected by it. And I said to myself, you are absolutely in a spiritual stupor. You need to be awakened. How do you say to a woman that you are victimizing? Be quiet because it's going to affect millions of souls. Hmm, here's a thought. Here's a spiritual thought. How about you repent so that it doesn't affect millions of souls? That's dastardly. And you remember our first point, even when it came to Manasseh, was that we see the amazing grace in the revolting reign of Manasseh. And I chose that word on purpose, revolting. What does the word revolting mean? It means something that's nauseating. It's upsetting. It's putrefying, if you will. It's horrible. That's revolting that you say to someone, oh, don't let this out because the souls of millions are at stake. So that tells me how can a person's heart be so cold and so indifferent that you're going to reference the mil- millions of souls, but continue in your sin. But there was Manasseh. He should have known better, but he didn't follow it. But with Manasseh, What is wonderful about it is this, the grace of God intervened. The grace of God stepped in. The grace of God broke him. And once it broke him, then God could pour into him. And it's been said many times in different ways, just that idea. uh, There are times in life when God must do just that. He must break us first before he can pour into us. God was gracious in that he rebuked Manasseh. We see that in verses really 10 and 11. So the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention to him. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains, and brought him into Babylon. Now remember, at this time, Assyria is the world power. And at this point, Babylon is rising but yet they are still subject to Assyria. So they don't take him to Nineveh. Instead, they take him to Babylon. Because in one sense, a simple way of putting it, Babylon is subject to Assyria at this point. So they take him off in humiliation. But that is an act of grace in rebuking. Even the scripture tells us, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? Does it not? But deceitful what? Are the kisses of an enemy. So I even pause for a moment and ask you a very practical question. Uh, Is there someone in your life that can rebuke you? How do you respond to rebuke? Is there someone in your life that loves you enough to say that's wrong? Is there someone that cares for your soul enough to say uh, you are misdirected? Is there someone that shows you enough affection and concern for your well-being that can say, friend, if you continue in this path, I see destruction. God was that person for uh, Manasseh. And he is always that person for us, but we must listen when he speaks. There's also grace in the repentance of Manasseh, as we noted even last week in his repentance. And we, we noted four words, and I alluded to them already. Word number one was distress. God uses pain to bring men and women to their senses. He was in distress. So as he is away in Babylon, He was in distress, verse 12, God uses it. Um, For sure, 
we've all experienced it. And then entreated, as we said last week, a wonderful word in the Hebrew when it says he entreated the Lord, his God. It literally is soften the face of Yahweh, his Elohim. Beautiful. It's just one of the most beautiful things you can see in scripture that God's face is angry towards him. But these words that are expressed in the context of humility soften his face. And even as I asked you last week, what happens to our face when we're angry? It becomes what? Tense, does it not? And so when someone can bring us calming words, it it takes that tense um, face away Think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ did this for the father for us and that he was the sacrifice for us. And God's face was bent towards us in wrath. And it was softened for us because he took on our sin. Romans five, we were helpless, but now we are overcomers in Christ. We were ungodly, but now we are saints before the Lord. We were sinners but now we are free from the curse and the power of sin. We were enemies of God, but now we're reconciled to God and we can now live a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit for his glory. And then notice what else he prayed. It's really just a cry for mercy. He cries out to the Lord, Lord, will you intervene? Will you hear? Will you be gracious? And then he knew the Lord. This is really a sign of his genuine humility because there can be humiliation without humility. I mean, humiliation is to the point where you may bring someone to a low state, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to be humble. If we think about Pharaoh, classic example is Pharaoh. Pharaoh was surely humiliated, but he never humbled himself. Sometimes God may humiliate a person and can actually cause the opposite where they swell up even more before the Lord and they blame God and they become angry at God. God has brought them to a low state in life. So instead of crying out to the Lord for mercy and for help, something inside of them stands up. And then a next consideration is this amazing grace in the reformation. And that actually should be number four, should be number four. Amazing grace in the reformation of Manasseh. In his reformation, um, we'll see verses 14 and 17. And notice, if you will, it says, Now, after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon and the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he circled the Ophel with it and made it very high. Then he put commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain on the side of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. Verse 16, he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered... Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Verse 17, nevertheless, the people still sacrifice in the high places, although only to the Lord, their God. So we see amazing grace in the reformation of of Manasseh. And there, there are five words that sort of help us, if you will, build on this thought. Five words that walk us through this part of the narrative. The first word is build. Notice verse um 
verse 14. So he built, so he strengthens the walls. And this is really continuing the work that was began by his father, Hezekiah. And he completes the work that he began, the temple's upper gate. You'll see a, a reference to that if you go back to Second Chronicles 23.20. Uh, it says there, and Jothan rebuilt it, and it was situated on the north side. That's if you look to Jeremiah 20, verse 2, Ezekiel 9.2, to give you a picture. So the north side of the city, uh, Jothan has rebuilt this upper gate. Um, Hezekiah is rebuilding it. It stops for a period of time. And now what does Manasseh do? He completes the work, even the hill of Ophel, which is strategic in the old city of David. He continues this construction. So why is that important? He is saying the city of God must be protected. And what does he do throughout the territories of Judah? He stations military posts there. There is a threat. So he is concerned about the people of God. He removed, notice what it says in verse 15. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars which he had built on the mountain. And he threw them outside of the city. When he threw them outside of the city, it was simply a statement that reflected they have no business here. What you'll notice consistently and actually and those of you that are in our 90-day through the Bible program, you probably noticed when you were going through the book of Leviticus how often um, it, was, it talks about a sacrifice and the parts that were not um, acceptable to the Lord. Where did they put them? Outside the city. Outside the city. Outside the city. And Manasseh is saying it has no place near the house of the Lord. And so here he continues to follow what he should have followed before the lessons learned from his father, Hezekiah. And then he set up. So he set up what should have been done earlier as well in the house of the Lord. He takes away the old and he puts in the new. He takes away the false gods and now he begins proper sacrifice in the house of the Lord. In one sense, you can think for a moment, at least I did, the Old Testament concept of put off and put on. We're to put off the things of the past and we're to put on our new life in Christ. And this is what we see happening here. And then verse 16, he ordered. He demonstrates now spiritual leadership that was expected of a king. And particularly in line with David. And remember Chronicles is taking us through the Davidic line. And Chronicles is more concerned about the theology behind each king. And so here he is representing David's spirit, if you will, to order the people to be worshipers of God. And then verse 17, he sacrificed. But there's something we need to see in verse 17, nevertheless. So why does it say nevertheless? Instead of saying, and also, and to his credit, and praise the Lord. It doesn't start that way. The people still sacrifice in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. They should have never sacrificed in the high places. Although it says only to the Lord their God, they weren't those places that were, if you will, designated to be places of worship. So what they've done is modified it. The high places were set up to be places where they would sacrifice the false gods. And now they're saying, well, let's still leave them here, but now we'll only do it to the Lord. 
The Lord says, no, wipe them all out. That's why later on Josiah comes and he destroys all the high places as well. Not just because they were being, uh, they were sacrificing the false gods because that is not the place where we should worship. And this is really an indication here that perhaps now these perhaps last half a dozen years of his life, that it's hard to undo things, isn't it? Habits are formed. And all of us know that in a practical way, don't we? We develop habits and we say to ourselves, today is the day. I will rid you flesh of this. And we can make that pronouncement. And some of us, we hear a lesson and we say that lesson is good. I'm going to turn the corner today. We go to retreat and we say, that's it. I'm not retreating. I'm advancing. We say, right? And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, there it is again. Those habits again. Those words again. That attitude again. Those thoughts again. Those looks again. That's why it requires a full and absolute committed statement to follow the Lord. And what does it require? Consistently checking our spiritual life. Do you agree with me? We cannot go on the laurels of our past. I remember that sweet time that I had with the Lord. And now we no longer are engaging with the Lord. And then what does the enemy do? He is forever knocking at the door. Have, you, have any of you gotten to the point of your life where your flesh never has stopped knocking? Are any of you at that point? Is anyone in this room? No, I didn't think so. No one in this room is at the point where they never hear that knock anymore. Now, in some areas of your life, it's not as loud. Amen? That's sanctification. But there's still areas where it's, hey, you remember? You remember? Remember me? And we can go back. And then sometimes we go back and say, oh, but I forgot that it was horrible in the end. I forgot that it was not worth it in the end. They sacrificed, but not properly. Josiah got rid of them all. 34 and 3. He tore down all the high places. Here's the next consideration for us. Amazing grace in the record of Manasseh. In the record of Manasseh. Notice verses 18 to 20. He says, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God and the works of the seers who spoke to him, it says, in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also, and how God was entreated by him, and all his sin, his unfaithfulness, and the sites on which he built high places, and erected the ashram, and the carved images, before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the records of Huzai. So Manasseh slept with his father, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon his son became king in his place. Now notice something, just in verse 19 is interesting. If you notice verse 19, you see his prayers, but sandwiched between it are his sins. If, if, you, if you look at the first part of verse 19, he prayed, but at the latter part of verse 19, he humbled himself, and in between it doesn't erase 
the record of his sin and his unfaithfulness and his high places and the ashram and the images. No, it's still a reality. It's still a part of his record. And even that being a part of his record is an act of grace in this way. It is a reminder that God forgives sinners. It doesn't eradicate uh, our record. It doesn't say that it never exists, but God is a God that forgives sinners. His prayer actually um, is recorded in the Apocrypha. Um, There are parts of it that you might read, um, and it is quite eloquent. But nonetheless, we don't have to look to his prayer. We know that, in fact, he indeed entreated the Lord, and God's face was softened towards him. And then he slept. He slept, but yet he didn't sleep like the other kings that were wicked kings who slept without repentance. He slept and he went to be with his God, but he didn't sleep the sleep of a seared conscience. God had been gracious towards him. And we should be thankful for God's graciousness even in our lives. Notice verse 23, though. It's important. Ammon becomes king. And he was only a king for two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. Isn't that interesting, though? So Ammon is going to see the evil of Manasseh, and it influences him more than the good. And I'm going to address that in a moment. Verse 23, moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. In one sense, what he's saying is, you saw this reform take place right in front of you, Ammon. Why didn't you follow it? But instead, you reverted back to the evil side of what you saw, and you multiplied guilt. You made it even worse. And God only allowed him to reign two years. Notice what it says, verse 24, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators. So you say to yourself, here is again, God's grace, God's sovereignty. Manasseh, 55 years. Why doesn't God, um, as we even alluded to before, like an Onan who did evil and God just killed him. Why doesn't he do that with Manasseh? God is gracious and we don't always understand his ways. Ammon, two years and he's dead. Why is that? I think there's a lesson for us all to learn, and it's a plain and simple one, if you will. And it is this, friends. You just never know how much time you have, do you? You don't know how much time you have in life. You don't. Nothing is guaranteed. It may be 55 years. It may be two. You may make it to that ripe old age of whatever that is, You may not. Tomorrow very much what could be your last day on this earth. Um, Interesting enough, George last week um, was a movie critic for a moment and recommended a a movie, uh, Greater. And we had some time on Friday night and I said, okay, uh, let's watch the movie that the good doctor said was worthwhile. So we did. Um, this story, as you'd heard before, of a, a walk-on um, to the University of Kansas, um, ne- 
What's that? I'm sorry, Arkansas. Arkansas. Yeah, Arkansas, Razorback. And uh, made the team, not only made the team, became a standout All-American um, with sort of his spirit, inspired others around him, um, had a chance at being national champs, ended up winning the Citrus Bowl, gets drafted by the Indianapolis Coats, um, was told that he would be a starter. Right now, if you go to the University of Arkansas, his locker is encased. No one would ever use that locker again. Um, he ended up, because he was redshirted the first year, he ended up finishing his degree and got his master's degree while he was still playing. And he was a kid that they said, your grades, I'm not even sure if you can get in. Amazing story. Here he was, and now his um, dad left him drunkard at an early age, raised by mom. Mom takes out sort of a, a second mortgage to help him through his first year. He makes the team, gets the scholarship, becomes a starter, standout. And then he's going to, he makes a decision one day. There was a presentation that was going to take place. He says, no, I promised my mom I would go see her. And then I'm going to report to camp for the coats. He's on the road. And guess what? Life is over. Life is over. And the story, which is actually very pretty accurate, his brother struggles with it a great deal. Why? He's done nothing but good. Why? And he was a Christian young man, and he had influenced some of the, many of the people on the team as they saw him waking up early in the morning on his knees praying. And others that had ridiculed him initially, now they don't ridicule him anymore because he was a baller as well. well what, I say baller, what does that mean? <laughs> Let me trans some of you. Let me trans. Let me translate that for you. <laughs> I thought about, and I was just telling my students, and Dale can say to this, you know, be careful sometimes with athletic illustrations when we preach, but you can say things that like baller. What is what does he mean? Is that like uh, is that Akkadian or is that Aramaic or something? A baller means this. He was very very good. He was very very tough. Okay, okay, we got the translation, everyone. So. But think about it. I'm going to see mom. No, I don't need any more accolades. Semi. Hit him. Died instantly. Just never know. And see, we say these things. And isn't it interesting that sometimes you hear these things and then we still sometimes say, but it won't be me. Did they think it was going to be his, their, her son? No. Was the mom there expecting? I think it's my son's time. She's expecting him to come and see her and greet her. Do you expect as the brother would pull up and, and the policeman outside, do you expect to ever see that at your home? No, but it happens. And it could very well happen to you. I mean, our dear brother, one of our dear seminarians, in this very room, I taught the class. And right here, I would teach you from here. And Bobby Bransley would be about right over there, third row back, beaming from the class that I was teaching. And after class, talking about how he was so, so, uh, in a sense, enthused that he could be here at the Master's Seminary, learning the Word of God, learning these things. I, right now, right about right there, I can see his face. That's where he sat. 
And now he's in heaven. How will you end your life? When you sleep and you will sleep. On what pillow will you put your head? Will you, will you put your pillow on a, your head on a pillow that says, I've lived under the grace of God. Do you understand what I'm saying to you this morning? This leads me to a thought. The why and how of God's forgiveness. So amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wrench like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Why does this happen? Well, it happens because of God's great forgiveness. It is based in his character. It is God's holy person. This is the otherness of God. Well, God in his perfection has decided that although I'm a perfect being, I desire to have a relationship with these imperfect beings and I will give my son for them. But yet there's a standard that must be met and that standard is God's holiness and it could only be met through the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgives his purpose. And what is his purpose? He is different from all other gods, all these other false idols, in that he is a forgiving God that desires to be gracious to his subjects. Unlike the gods of the land, and you had to do so many things to appease them, unlike them, you could soften the face of Yahweh, your God. Listen to this, Micah 7.18, a great text. Micah 7.18, listen to what it says. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. That's a beautiful text, isn't it? And as uh, the prophet presents this rhetorical question, well, who is a God like you? None. You are distinct. You are alone. You are transcendent. This is who you are. But yet this transcendent God is also God of eminence in this sense that he is a God that has come and he has been among us and he brings grace to us. That's the thought of Titus chapter two. The grace of God appeared and it appeared in Jesus Christ. And that last line in that verse, but he delights in unchanging love. Why did God forgive Manasseh? Why did he humble him? Why did he he allow his face to be softened? Because he delights in grace. Aren't you glad that he delights in grace? Aren't you glad that he does this not because of us? It's not, well, I delight in Carl. I delight in George. I delight in Mark. I delight in, no, it's not that. I delight in unchanging love. And therefore I will show that love and that grace towards these people who humble themselves. And see, it's also this. It's also a statement of the sufficiency of the cross. What do I mean by that? The reality of Manasseh and countless other people who have been forgiven really demonstrates the extent of the cross, the extensive reach of the cross. It's a statement of the total worth of Jesus Christ. So the moment we say that Manasseh can be forgiven or anyone throughout history, it's a statement of just how great Christ is the sufficiency of the cross. And actually, we must be careful 
and listen to what I'm about to say. We must be careful in being too surprised when people can be forgiven. Why? Because in our surprise, in one sense, we're saying, God can do that? Really? Yes, indeed, he can, and he does, and he will, and he has throughout history. And those of you that are here today, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are here because, yes, he does that. It's amazing. As wretched as he was, that God forgives. And notice that Manasseh made no sacrifice. Oh, it was the sacrifice he offered was simply one of humility and brokenness. I want to close our message. Let me give you five principles that can help us bring this message together, if you will. Number one is this. God's grace will never be overshadowed by man's sin. Never. Paul reminds us when he said, sin increased, but grace abounded all the more. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This should be a particular comfort when you may see a loved one, a friend, or it's a, a relative that's away in sin. God is one who seeks after men and women. No sinful behavior is beyond God overshadowed by his grace. Number two, God's grace does not always remove the consequences of sin. We need to see that. Uh, the, The years of Manasseh's sinful patterns left a lingering stain. And as we noted in verse 17, the people still offered on the high places, but only to the Lord. But that would be a stumbling block later on. This makes us think for a moment the impact of our actions. There may be lingering effects of habits that we have demonstrated in front of people. And then when we turn, uh, when we repent, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to come with us. So think about that for a moment. The impact of your life on other people. You may come to your senses and say, I'm going to turn the corner. But yet, if you've been a poor example for someone else for years, they may not turn with you. They may not turn with you. Uh, It's often said, even in parenting, that so much is caught and not taught. Do you agree with that? Absolutely true. When it comes to spiritual leadership, caught as well. Your example of our own friends and relatives that you have. Be careful about your life. When we see a Manasseh, those years of leading people astray would have a negative impact on them. Number three is this. Be bold in your proclamation of the gospel. Knowing that it will do what? It's going to accomplish its purpose in the hearts of those God has chosen to hear. What does Isaiah tell us about God's word? It will not return what? It will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it out. What does um, Romans 1.16 tell us? Uh, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God unto what? Salvation for all who believe. So do not shrink from this commitment. The, the message was resisted. We see in verse 10 God spoke to them, but they didn't hear it. But yet we still preach it. We still preach. Number four, like Manasseh, God may be using humiliation to create a humble heart in you or someone you know. Pray diligently that you'll learn the lessons that God wants you to learn. Pray for that person. You may see a person going through difficulty and sometimes 
we should not be too quick to rescue them because maybe God is trying to humble them. And that humiliation, God is going to bring them to faith or bring them to a greater sense of sanctification. Turn with me to the psalmist. Look with me at Psalm 119. This is proven there. Even the psalmist, um, all these verses really is a testimony to the sufficiency of God's word that we see in the psalmist. Think about it, 176 verses for the most part, they're all saying that God's word is sufficient, is it not? And we see in the psalmist, my heart for his word, my heart to follow your ways. But yet notice this, notice God's formula to create humility and sanctification. Um, Let's first start Psalm 119, verse 67. Notice what it says. You've dealt well with your servant, verse 65, according to your word, teach me, for I believe in your commandments. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I did what? I went astray, but now I keep your word. Affliction brings me back to you. I was astray. Notice 71. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That is so important, that last thought. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Not only is it an act of God's amazing grace, it's an act of God's faithfulness to mold us into the image of Christ. And at times God uses affliction to do that. Paul knew that, 2 um, Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. The thorn in his flesh humbled himself. Go back to 2 Chronicles, if you will. 2 Chronicles 33. So 2 Corinthians 9, 12, 9 and 10, Paul knew it. But if we go back to 2 Chronicles 33, I said I would come back here this week. Notice again in verse 12. He was in distress. He entreated the Lord. And he says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. That is so important. Humility. It's a theme that you see throughout even scripture. Humility. Why humility? Because humility is the opposite of the original sin. What is the original sin? Pride. Until pride be found in you. And so here he humbles himself before the Lord. We see it in Chronicles. Go with me, if you will. Let's look at some examples. Second Chronicles. Look at chapter 7. Second Chronicles 7. An often quoted verse and often misapplied to the church today, um, but great truths in it. Second Chronicles 7.14. And my people who are called by my, my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And this was demonstrated in the life of Manasseh. He did just that. Look with me, if you will, to chapter 12, 2 Chronicles 12. 2 Chronicles 12, and then really verses 1 through 12, but I'm just going to highlight it. Um, Some examples, Rehoboam, sinful Rehoboam, but notice what it says in verse 6. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. Then in verse seven, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to um, Shemaiah saying, 
They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the men of Shishak. He saw their humility. Look at verse 12. Again, it says, And when he humbled himself, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy them completely, and also conditions were good in Judah. God looks for humility. And you just see it throughout. It's in chapter 30. It's in chapter 32. It's in chapter 36. Humility. Number five is this. The fifth consideration. If there is a, if there is a lesson that you can learn from this episode, it's to grasp this. Grasp this. Bask in the amazing grace of God. Amen. I mean, bask in it. When I say bask, why did I choose that word? To bask in something, to savor it, to take full advantage of it. There are times you may see me, even this morning, I went for my run and I'm catching the sunrise over the hills and I pause for a moment and what a beautiful sight. Let me stop for a moment. There are times when I've been out and I, let me bask in it. Let me appreciate it all the more. And so we should be this way when it comes to the grace of God, because where would we be? 10 million times, um, they believe that amazing grace would be performed in a given year. 10 million times. Think about that. It's a lot. But we know the man behind it, at least some of us know, John Newton. At a young age, very close to death, he examined his relationship with the Lord developed a number of bad habits. Then as a sailor, he denounced his faith. He was influenced by someone who gave in the book the characteristics of men, manners, and opinions, and times. Newton later wrote this. He says, like an unwary sailor who quits his port just before a rising storm, I renounce the hopes and comforts of the gospel at the very time when every other comfort was about to fail me. So he had a word, a way for words even before he wrote, did he? He's humiliated because of sort of insurrection in the Navy. He's traded off to be a crew member in a slave ship, and he begins his slave trade. He would mock the captain, and he would have others join in his mockery of the captain. So much so that at one point in time, they actually chained him Um, on the ship and they chained him along with the slaves on the ship itself. And as a punishment, he had to work on a British colony in Sierra Leone. So he was doing the work of slaves there. And for a while he considered Sierra Leone to be home for him. His father got word of it and his father intervened. That's a good word, isn't it? He intervened. He had him now. He's brought back. He's on the ship, the Greyhound. On the Greyhound, he still is known for being a person with quite a tongue. He's following all the habits of sailors. And and if you can think about all the stereotypes of a sailor, it was definitely true of those around him. As a matter of fact, he was so known for his rude and crude tongue. Some refer to it as verbal debauchery that he was involved in. Even the captain of the ship says, I've never heard such words as Newton would speak. But he cried out one day, there is a storm that took one of his crewmen over. 
Imagine that a storm is coming and one moment you see your crew member and the next moment he's gone. So Newton and some, someone else, they tied themselves to the ship itself. So in case they were thrown aboard, someone could at least pull them back. He cried out that the Lord would have mercy on him, mercy on him. But right away, he wasn't changed. God began a process in him. He eventually will come to a full and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He got out of the slave trade. He was going to be a captain on a ship, regular cargo ship. That's what he'd hoped to do. And at age 30, he collapsed and he never sailed again. John Newton, verbal debauchery. John Newton, the worst of the worst. So much so that on a slave ship, he's chained as a slave. He was so bad. But amazing grace. And what did he write? I'll just close by reading it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wrench like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangerous toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will be my shield and portion as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart may fail, and I pause for a second. Remember, I reminded you that your flesh and your heart one day will fail, and you don't know when it's going to occur. And mortal life shall cease. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there, and I love this, 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we have what? We have no less days to sing his what? Praise than when we first begun. That's amazing grace. I mean, think about that. A thousand years, we're just starting. A million years, we're just starting. And here's the reality. In eternity, there is no start because there is no what? Amen. How is it that some of you in this room today will experience that? How is it that Manasseh came to know the Lord only by amazing grace? And if I were to go through this room right now and we begin to list the sins that you have committed against the living God, would there be fornicators in this room? Would there be adulterers in this room and liars in this room? Would there be cheats in this room? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Father, we thank you for your word you give us. Help us to respond properly to your amazing grace. You say Manasseh, but in one sense should be no surprise because of how great you are.
Christ's name.